series through the Gospel of Matthew. This is message number 20, entitled Great Faith. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. And I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 4 um, here at the beginning. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So the end of chapter 7 in Matthew is... Uh, the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And verses 28 and 29 there give an important summary of Jesus' teaching there on the mountain in Galilee. The large crowd that had heard the teaching that Jesus gave were, were told astonished. They were in amazement, and they were amazed by the content of what he said. They were also amazed at the way that he said all that he had to say uh, as having authority. Well, Jesus made clear, as you look at the Sermon on the Mount through chapters 5 to 7, he made very clear that he was giving his words to the people. I think 14 times he said, I say unto you, and there's other references to his words and these sayings of mine and, and such that you find in the reference. He was very clear that he was the one speaking, giving his words to the people and commanding them to obey his words. You read through the sermon and you see that he, equo- he equated obeying his words with doing the will of his Father in heaven. He taught that obeying his words was necessary in order to enter the future kingdom and that failing to obey his words meant destruction. He taught that he is the future judge to whom men will protest that they deserve to enter into the kingdom, but he will cast them out. He called God my father, which every time that he has used that particular phrase with the possessive, he used it in declaring his deity, his equality with the Father. In fact, one of the things that greatly offended um, the Pharisees and others was that he referred to God as my Father, making himself equal with God, claiming to be the Son of God. He also taught having authority, so he taught as God, he taught as king, he taught as lawgiver, he taught as judge. So the Sermon on the Mount is the opening declaration of what Paul twice referred to as the law of Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21, Galatians chapter 6, and verse number 2. Now, it's easy for us to read in the New Testament, to become acquainted and familiar with it, and it's easy for us to read Christ as simply a name, Jesus Christ, as if that's the name of this man that we're talking about, rather than the office of which that word, that title, actually points to. It's the Greek equivalent to Messiah that we get in the Old Testament, the anointed one. And so this is the law of Messiah. 
And I think for some reason, to put it that way, does strike us differently. We hear law of Christ, it's very easy just to sort of read over that and to not think about the implications of what's being said. This is the law of Messiah. Of course, the law of Messiah encompasses everything um, that Jesus commanded, not just Matthew chapters 5 to 7. But the last three chapters have given a very heavy emphasis then on authority, on commandments, on obedience and judgment. And it may make us wonder, well, what, what about faith? And, well, that really brings us to chapter number 8 when we are considering faith in particular. So the chapter 8 here in verses 1 to 17 that we're looking at in this particular sermon is beginning the account of Jesus' messianic sign ministry. And we begin here with a group of three miracles in particular. Now, Matthew has already mentioned prior to this that Jesus has healed all types of sicknesses and diseases. He's cast out evil spirits. He's done many such miracles. Uh, That's all the way back in chapter 4, verses 23 to 24. But Matthew has not yet given any specific instances of Jesus healing someone until now, until we get here to Matthew chapter number 8. And you're going to notice as you read through these, the accounts of these healings, these messianic signs, that there continues to be an emphasis on Jesus' authority. And when we think about Jesus' authority, it probably would be good to keep in mind that, that this is um, referring to his deity. He has authority because he is God in the flesh. Now, sometimes we find Jesus touching the people that he heals, um, and I think there is certainly significance there. But even in those cases, the emphasis typically comes back to that it's his words or it's his, the expression of his will that signals the healing for the person. And, of course, faith is also greatly emphasized here in chapter number 8, particularly with this account of the centurion, which includes just a remarkable statement about the coming kingdom. So we're going to look at these three instances in verses 1 to 4, where we read about the leper uh, that came to Jesus and was healed. Verses 5 to 13, where we read about the centurion uh, who had a sick servant and came to Jesus. And verses 14 to 17, where we read about Peter's mother-in-law who was sick and then sort of a summary statement um, of Jesus' ministry. So we're going to begin here uh, in verses 1 to 4 here with the account of the leper coming to Jesus. Let's start with verse 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Now, obviously, the mountain here refers to the mount there in Galilee where he taught as recorded there in uh, chapters 5 to 7. And Matthew uses an adjective here um, to emphasize the size of the crowd following Jesus. In other words, you, you see two words here, great multitudes. And there's two words behind that in um, the Greek text. But the word for multitudes that he uses here is a word that already it means throngs, a great crowd, or multitudes as, as it is um, oftentimes translated. And it is in the plural, so it's multitudes, not just multitude that's, that's being used. So in other words, he's already using a term 
that expresses a very large crowds of people that were following after Jesus at this point. But then, then he adds to that an adjective. And we see it here, it's translated great. And this adjective means many or much or great. And so he's, he's, he's doubly emphasizing that these were very large crowds of people that were following Jesus at this point as he come down from the mountain. Uh, and, and in other words, he's showing that, that Jesus um, has gained at this point a very large following, people that are, that are following him about um, so that he quite became popular. And so, in fact, you may, uh, some uh, commentators uh, uh, have, have even referred to this particular phase of Jesus' ministry, this Galilean ministry, as, as the, the year of popularity or, or, or something like that. I've seen sometimes in, in headings in books and things. So he, he had become um, quite well known quite well thought of in, in many ways. He, he was followed by very large crowds of people. Now, of course, this is setting the stage for us because we're going to start to see some cracks showing up in, 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 this, in this building, if it were. So th- there's going to be a, a rejection. There's going to be a, 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 a demolition of this multitude that's going to come. But as of now, he's got large crowds of people that are following him. And so then we come to verse 2. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. So a leper comes to Jesus and bows down before him, and that's what the uh, word translated worshipped there. Um, That's what it indicates, that he he bows before Jesus, and and he's showing certainly much respect. How far that respect and, and reverence goes um, we're not entirely sure, but, but he is showing much respect to Jesus. Now, there's been a, a, a lot of scholarly research into the exact disease that is referred to as leprosy in the Bible. Um, and the truth is that we do not know exactly what disease is being referred to in the Bible. One thing we do know is that it's not the disease that we refer to today as leprosy or also Hansen's disease, that that is not what is being referred to, and that can be actually told from the descriptions and such in the, in the Old Testament. So when you go back to the Old Covenant law, Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 in particular deal with leprosy, and they deal with leprosy in terms of diagnosing it, of quarantining it, and the ceremonial cleansing for those who have recovered from it, uh, have been cured. So leprosy there, when you, when you go back to that description in Leviticus, leprosy actually applies to various types of diseases. And, and there's actually about, I think it's somewhere around 21 different cases that are actually presented there in Leviticus chapter number 13. So again, it's not referring to just one thing but to to, uh, different types of diseases, some forms of it obviously could be recovered from, and that's spoken about um, there and what the priests were to do and and all that sort of thing. But the worst forms of it were fatal, and there was no hope of a cure. And so those those people were put put into what you might call a permanent quarantine, were to cover their faces, um, in public. In other words, this was uh, 
infectious disease is spread by contact, obviously spread um, through the air, and so on. But exactly what disease that this was, um, we don't know um, for sure what it was. But if this is the same man that Luke referred to in in Luke chapter 5 and verse 12, which it probably is, then Luke there said that he was full of leprosy. In other words, meaning that this disease had affected his entire body. And if that was the case, then that meant that this man belonged to the worst of the cases that you would read about back in Leviticus 13. And it also meant that he was probably fairly near to death. There was not certainly a long life expectancy um, for those in, in the worst of the cases of this particular disease. Now, the statement that he makes is acknowledging Jesus' authority. He says, if you will it, you can make me clean. He didn't question whether Jesus could heal him, but the question was to this man was simply whether Jesus would. He's acknowledging that Jesus can heal him. He doesn't seem to doubt that. But his question is rather, if you will it to be so, then I can be healed. And notice also that he said, not that Jesus could heal him, but that Jesus could make him clean. And that word is used continuously or consistently in this account. Now, the word there refers to purity, which refers not, not to, the, to being healed from some disease or, or being cured or recovered, but it particularly refers to ritual purity according to the law. So again, this man having experienced the worst of the cases of leprosy would have been in the worst condition of quarantine that was observed um, in Israel in those days. And, and, but this would mean that if he could be cleansed, then he could rejoin the community of Israel. He could rejoin the, the social and, and cultural and, and, and such life of the, the people to whom he belonged. And he simply says, if you will it, you can make me clean. And then we see in verse number 3, and Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So Jesus touches him and cleanses him. But we're also told that Jesus spoke the words, I will. He, he willed that this man would be cleansed, and so he was. And so Jesus demonstrates here authority over disease. Now, according to the law, the contact would have rendered Jesus defiled, would have rendered him ceremonially unclean. But instead of that, the man was cleansed and was healed. And Matthew notes that it was immediate, meaning that he was cured immediately. It wasn't, it wasn't a process of time. It wasn't, you know, take two of these and call me in the morning um, kind of thing. It, it was immediately he was cleansed. This man in one moment has the worst of the cases of a fatal, incurable disease, and in the next moment is completely healthy and whole. 
And we come to verse 4. And Jesus saith unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. So Jesus commands him, and what this amounts to here, he tells him to tell, tell no man. Essentially, he's, he's saying, go, go directly. Go directly to the priest according to the old covenant law through Moses. Now, Leviticus chapter 14 in particular gives the ceremonial cleansing um, that would have applied to his case, and it would be administered and overseen, uh, overseen by the priest. And this, it's also interesting to note that this process... Um, according to the law, also would have included the mikvah, um, which refers to the immersing himself in one of the pools that would have been there by the temple, that would have been for that purpose. It would have been a part of the ritual cleansing um, that he would have undergone. But anyway, the last line here in verse number 4, Jesus told him to do this for a testimony or a witness to them, to the priests, in Jerusalem, the priests at the temple. So the purpose that he was to go and do this was to give witness to the priests. Now, the priests are the ones who would have um, diagnosed and pronounced him unclean, separated him from the community of Israel. And his complete and miraculous healing by the word of Jesus was a witness to them. Of what? That the Messiah had come. Furthermore, Jesus is acting here as a priest. Jesus declares this man clean. And he's sending witness to them that the Messiah has come. This is the very sort of healing that was expected when the Messiah came. And again, it's the sort of healing that was completely beyond any sort of of medical help or anything that they had available to them in that day. Then we come to the second episode. This is verses 5 to 13, which is a much longer um, account. Uh, When the centurion comes to Jesus, it tells us in verse 5, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, or begging him, in essence. Now, Capernaum was a fishing village that was located on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's the place where Peter lived. Um, Capernaum was also where some of the troops of the Roman uh, Empire were stationed under the the direction of um, Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Uh, He was given the Tetrarchy of Galilee and Perea upon the death of his father, Herod the Great. Uh, A centurion was a Roman officer who was captain Uh, And I've seen some different reports, so it seems like he was captain over uh, what could be somewhere around 80 to 100 um, soldiers. And and these soldiers would be part of a larger legion. And so this centurion um, was also a Gentile, Um, and he came to see Jesus. His his troops in Capernaum would have been made up out of Gentiles, um, most likely from the region, and also um, Samaritans. And um, he comes to, in other words, he's about, he's about as out as, as out can be in terms of the community of Israel. In verse number 6, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. So he explains that his house servant um, was sick, 
and he was suffering from some sort of paralysis. And not only was he suffering from some sort of paralysis, but he was in a great amount of pain. And this is another place where we're getting a double emphasis, grievously tormented. He, he was in a great amount of pain and suffering because of the paralysis. Verse 7, And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. So Jesus here speaks. He offers to come and to heal the servant, and that leads to the response in verse number 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. So the centurion doesn't want to accept this offer, and he states that he is unfit for Jesus to enter into his house. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this centurion. Some uh, Luke's account gives a little more um, information about him. Um, it is generally thought that he was probably what was known as a God-fearing um, Gentile, meaning he was not a full proselyte. He hadn't been circumcised, did not live um, as a Jew, but he probably did uh, attend to the synagogues and seems he, in some way he um, contributed actually to the construction of the, of the synagogue. And he was very um, friendly and, and knowledgeable to the Jews and such. So he's, this is not just an ex- expression of, of what you might call false humility. He says, I'm unfit. And, and most likely what he's referring to is the fact that, that he's a Gentile. And for Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, to enter into his house, that would defile him. And that was the common um, belief and the practice of, of Judaism in that day that to enter into the house of a, of a Gentile or to sit and to eat with a Gentile um, what would defile them and they would have to go through their um, separation and their ceremonial cleansing and, and all of that thing. And so the centurion said to Jesus that you, you only have to speak the word. In other words, much like the leper in the previous episode, Jesus only has to have the will to give the command. And then he explains this more in verse number 9. He says, For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. Now, this centurion explains his statement by explaining authority and the structures of authority as an officer and also as a master of slaves. So by authority... He gave commands to his soldiers, just like as a master of the slaves, he gave commands to the slaves, and they carried out his commands. So what he's saying is he, did, he didn't personally go and, and do these things that he commanded, but it was done by those that he commanded to do it. And so in this way, he understood that Jesus had such authority of command though in this case it was authority over a particularly painful paralysis of which the centurion had no authority whatsoever, and he certainly wasn't claiming any, but he's talking to Jesus, whom he acknowledged that he did. Now we come to verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel." So Jesus, we're told, was amazed by the centurion's understanding. So we have the multitudes that were amazed with Jesus' teaching and authority at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And now Jesus is having this conversation with this centurion, and he's amazed um, at what this centurion spoke 
and his understanding of authority and his acknowledgement of the authority that Jesus has. Now you notice here that Jesus spoke to them that followed. He spoke to these multitudes, these great throngs that, that were with him and, and following him. And what does he say? He says, I, I haven't found such faith and understanding amongst those of Israel as is being expressed by this Gentile centurion. This Gentile, he's saying, expressed greater faith, greater understanding of his Messiahship than those in Israel had certainly to that point. And again, we know as we go through the Gospels that we're, we're sort of building up to this great rejection because Jesus was quite popular um, in this particular moment. But then, he's, then he goes on. He has, Jesus has set up a particular contrast And he's going to get to it here. Verse number 11, And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now here again, notice that he emphasizes his words. He uses this phrase again, I say unto you. What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, He's emphasizing that these are his words and these words are true, but also that Jesus is not making here what you might call a prediction. Remember, he spoke as never any man spoke. He's not making a prediction of what might happen or something such as that in the future. He's actually making a statement that this will happen. He's making a declaration. I say unto you that these will come from the east and the west. And and who are these that he's talking about? He's talking about many Gentiles, many of the the nations of the earth from east and west, which is sort of a a poetic way of of describing from all over the earth. People of all different nations are going to come from all over the earth, and they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom when it comes to this earth. Now, the word for sit down that he uses is actually uh, is a common word used to refer to recline, to recline at table, for instance. In other words, um, reclining at table for a feast. So Jesus is referring here to the Messianic feast in the kingdom when it comes in the future with the return of Christ. That's prophesied uh, in places like Isaiah chapter 25 and verse number 6. And he has, he has just stated that this centurion has expressed greater faith than those of Israel since he come. And they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what's the, the emphasis here is that there will be many from all these nations of the earth that will eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers to whom the promises were made. So Jesus is referring to Gentile inclusion in his kingdom that was promised to Abraham beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And the other emphasis is that this inclusion 
will be by faith. It's the point that Jesus is making. The sort of faith that this centurion has expressed. There will be many of many different nations from all over the earth that are going to enter into the kingdom by faith. Then verse 12, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The contrast then is that the sons of the kingdom, and it does use the the masculine, the huios there, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. Now, Jesus has just spoken as far as the way that Matthew is giving us the account. And again, as we go through Matthew and we look at these instances, they're not strictly speaking in a chronological order. Um, But we've just read, coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke repeatedly about entering into the kingdom or not entering into the kingdom. And here, he's declaring that many Gentiles will enter into the kingdom and many Israelites will not. The sons of the kingdom, these are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they have a biological descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they will be cast into outer darkness, which is what he refers to here, because of their unbelief. And then verse number 13. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. So Jesus dismisses this centurion, declaring that his servant will be healed or is healed by faith. And Matthew adds that he was healed at the time that Jesus spoke these words. Isn't it interesting when we read through these accounts, and and here with the centurion, again, as you look, there's three um, instances of healing that are referred to. Um, the leper, we get about four verses. We're, we get all these verses with the centurion. Peter's mother-in-law gets a couple of verses. Um, when, you, when you read these accounts, and there being a long, lengthy account here, what is most of this account devoted to? Well, it's mostly devoted to the words of Jesus, to the person of Jesus. In other words, the healing sort of gets, a, it, it gets this last statement, and his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. I'm not saying that the healing was no big deal, but it certainly is not the primary focus when you, when you read through here. Yes, he was healed, but it's more important to understand what is being said here about faith. What is being said here about the authority and the power of Jesus? What is being said here about who Jesus of Nazareth is in order to, to do and to perform such a healing? And then we get to this third instance with Peter's mother-in-law, beginning in verse 14. And when Jesus was coming to Peter's house... He saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. So Peter's house is obviously there in Capernaum. Um, his mother-in-law is, is uh, in bed. She is sick. Um, don't, again, don't know the nature. It's described as a, as a fever, and I think some, maybe one of the other accounts mentions it a very great fever or, or something like that, um, but we don't really know the exact problem she was having. Verse 15, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, And she arose and ministered unto them. So here again, Jesus touched this one that was sick. He he takes her by the hand, and she was healed of her sickness. The sickness that had confined her to bed, had immobilized 
her. And had her family so concerned for her, she's healed immediately. And, and here, the immediate nature of her healing is not expressly stated, but rather it's shown. It's shown in the fact that she gets up and she, she brings food to the table. Um, for Jesus, no doubt, and, and Peter and the other disciples that were with him. And that word for minister there, um, it is the word that means to wait tables, to serve um, tables. It's, it's, that, it's the, that word uh, in the Greek that we get the word deacon in English. It's where we get it from. Now, here it's not referring to the office, and the word itself did not refer to an office. It came to refer um, to that in some instances. Um, but the word is, is being used in its normal, natural meaning, and that's the activity of waiting tables. She brought them food is basically what we are being told. And again, showing that her healing was immediate, showing um, and no doubt showing her thankfulness um, for having been healed as well. And then we get to verses 16 and 17 here, which sort of give us um, kind, of a, kind of a summary at this point, it says, When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and, and healed all that were sick. Now, the evening, that the word that's used here refers to late afternoon or, or early evening, typically before the night, um, would have been sometime centered around sunset. You know, a little, it could have referred to a little bit before, it could have referred to a little bit after. When you read some of the other gospel accounts with the healing of, of Peter's mother, it appears that this might have actually taken place on the Sabbath day. And so this reference to the evening then would probably mean after sunset, which was technically the first day of the week considered at that point, and, and the Sabbath had ended. All these that were brought to him in a big rush, which it would have, it would have made sense that they, they would have brought them all at that time because they probably would have waited um, until the Sabbath was over. And so they brought all of them there. And, and, but what we're told is, is that he healed them all. Jesus healed them all. He cast out evil spirits of those that have been possessed by them with his words. And he, and he healed all kinds of sicknesses. Now, we're going to see um, more specific instances of, of Jesus um, dealing with, with evil spirits and, and such uh, demons, as sometimes we refer to them. Um, we're going to see more specific instances of that as we go along. But again, Matthew's giving us a sort of a summary statement here that just, again, emphasizing the authority of, of Jesus, his power over all these, all these different things. And in verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So Matthew notes how that Jesus doing these healings, these miraculous messianic miracles, he is fulfilling prophecy. And he refers to Isaiah 53 and verse number 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now it's interesting to note that Isaiah 53 records how Israel rejected the servant of Yahweh, the, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, sent to them to bear their sins. Now the point is, that Jesus worked the signs of the Messiah, showing that the kingdom had come near to them, but in the main, they did not believe it. So as we think about this passage, and remember how that 
Matthew um, sort of gets us into the ministry of Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 4, how that he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So he was preaching the good news of the kingdom, meaning that he declared that the kingdom was near. And if, if Israel would have repented and believed in Jesus, the Messiah, well, the kingdom would have come and they would have entered. And while many, many of Israel, all these great multitudes, many of Israel were certainly enjoying the benefits of kingdom blessings, such as uh, the Messiah signs of healing, they did not have the faith that the Gentile centurion expressed. And that will be revealed further in the gospel as they reject and oppose and ultimately crucify the Messiah who came to them. So they will find themselves cast out while many of the nations will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Well, of course, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming when Jesus returns and crushes his enemies, as we're told. We're told this in Matthew's gospel a little later on. We're told it in, in prophecies of the Old Testament. We're told it in the New Testament as well. And, of course, Israel has particular promises that apply to them through faith. But the good news is also that any man or any woman of any nation can enter into his kingdom when it comes if they repent and believe in Jesus, the Messiah. The healings that we read about that Jesus performed, these were kingdom signs that the kingdom was near because the Messiah, the King, had come. But one sure way that we know the kingdom is not here now is because these sicknesses continue today. And the healings themselves that we read about in this first century in the Gospels, they were certainly very merciful acts. But they mainly demonstrated that Jesus was who he said he was and who the prophets said that he was. They also previewed the life in the kingdom to come, an everlasting life where all sickness and all disease and all death are all done away. And they also show that salvation through faith is vastly more important than physical healing in our mortal bodies right now. Sin is by far the worst problem that we all have. It is the greatest problem that we all face, no matter what our, our physical problems are. And I know that they can be extreme, they can be severe, they can be many. But sin is by far the worst problem. All the other problems that we have can wreck our, our bodies, but sin wrecks our souls and dooms us to eternal punishment, condemnation, in the lake of fire. Well, through faith, we're healed of the condemnation of sin. And we will be given immortal, indestructible bodies for eternity in the future. But once again, the emphasis is that you have to believe in Jesus Christ. Amen.